You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Redeemer Church exists to make disciples and make much of Jesus. That's our mission, making disciples and making much of Jesus. We, we aren't here to play church. We can't. Life is too short. Eternity is far too urgent. And forgiveness is too needed. And God's grace for sinners is too glorious. And people are too broken and unloved to not encounter the real Jesus. Which is why we must be about making disciples and making much of Jesus Christ. Making much of that message that we talked about in our first week in our vision series. The gospel doctrine shapes us and our church. That Jesus' real death on a reused Roman cross and his real rising from the dead to forgive sinners like us is our message. And it's the superstructure of everything we do. It shapes and informs everything. It shapes and informs marriage, our parenting, our finances, our, our ethics at work, our dynamics and friendships. And it, I really do believe the gospel even speaks to your attitude when you're on 290 tomorrow. I think the gospel even informs how you handle yourself on the little league field watching your kids play or on the soccer field, or on holidays with weird family members. The gospel shapes all of us. And so last week we talked about how the gospel shapes our church culture, how we don't have to submit to church bullies, and how we can't bully one another with our own preferences and opinions, but we cling to Christ because we've died with him, and then we've raised with him, and we've set our mind on things above where Christ is, and this gives us a new way to operate. And since this is true, Christians have died and we've raised with Christ and we have set our mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. This also now means that a gospel culture is serious. Serious about holiness and about kindness. And that these two things must go together. A church that's holy and it would be a people that's kind. And so look with me at Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. So please flip in your Bibles there or turn on your Bibles to Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5. And as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of the Word of Christ. And we'll actually begin in verse 3, just to give us a little context to, to ebb into our section today. And Paul tells us by the power of the Spirit, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self 
You are being renewed in knowledge according to image of your creator, who in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we, we gather here in your name. We, we sing in your name. We, we read this word in your name. And we're, we're going to eat communion in your name. And we're going to talk together and encourage one another in your name. And we're going to go to work tomorrow in your name. We're going to parent in, in your name. It's all whatever we do. May it make much of you, Jesus. May that be the reality of Redeemer Church and this generation and the ones to come in Tomball, Texas. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's something really special about grandmas. They have a way about them that only grandmas can have. And I have great memories of my grandmother and her sweetness to me and to my cousins and my siblings. Um, my grandma in Dallas always would have us toys and give us these big hugs. And she would always have fresh fudge waiting for us when we got there. Always. And my Mexican grandmother, you know, she can't drive. Back then, she still can't drive to this day. So I remember being a little kid and walking with her down the street in a really sketchy kind of neighborhood, but walking with her down to this local gas station that had amazing Mexican sweetbread. And she'd buy us sweetbreads. When I, I just had these memories of these ladies, sweet ladies, but always giving us sweetness. That's like always goes with grandmas. They're sweet and they have sweet things to give you. But one thing about grandmas too, yes, they're sweet. They can also be tough. You mess with the family. Like you, that grandma may put a horse head in your bed. You just don't mess with the grandma. And like Judy Cochran, I don't know if you heard about Judy this past week in the news. She accomplished something this past week that should rocket her into legend status in Texas. I will be upset if my kids are not learning about Judy Cochran in Texas history. Here's why. Let me just read you the article headline. It says it best. Texas grandma kills 12-foot gator, says she finally avenged her mini horse. Can't, you can't write a better headline than that. So a gator eats her mini horse at their like, local pond, her family's pond, a few years ago, and she's been looking for this beast ever since. This is her white whale. Call her Ahab. 
And once gator season opened, her son-in-law hung a seasoned raccoon over the pond. I don't know how you season a raccoon, but I want to find out. So that he hangs a seasoned raccoon over this pond on a giant hook and hooks the beast. And Judy, Grandma Judy, who's also the mayor of their town, is in a meeting, calls her, I got him. Wraps up her meeting. She rolls up to the pond, sees it, and sees this 580-pound gator and gives it one shot with her Winchester 22 Magnum. Boom. And Nana, as her grandkids told her, call her, said to the papers, she can't wait to eat the meat, to mount the head, to put the tail in her office, and make boots from the hide. <laughs> the, the article ends, don't mess with Nana. <laughs> that alligator slaying grandmother is a metaphor for your Christian life. This woman avenging her mini horse it is a parable for a gospel culture. Sweet family, grandkids, son-in-laws involved, hanging a seasoned raccoon. They're all invested in this together to put something to death. You see what Paul tells us in verse 5? Look at verse 5 again. Therefore, since you've been raised with Christ, you've died with Christ, you have new life with Christ, therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. And he lists all these sins. Put them to death. Get rid of the gators in your life that want to destroy. And Paul says, put to death these things that belong to your earthly nature. They used to be a part of the old culture you belong to, the earthly one. But now in Christ, now we belong to a new culture, the culture of heaven, the culture of above, this new Jerusalem, this kingdom of God that's now invading on this earth. This is the culture we belong to. And Paul is showing us, here's how you live accordingly. Now look at what he says. You gotta put off the sanctificanots, meaning whatever hindrances, whatever hinders holiness and kindness. Whatever hinders holiness and kindness, you got to put them away. Now, sanctification is a big Bible word that sounds kind of fancy, but all it means is you growing in Christ, you being more like Jesus in his character and in his likeness and his responses and his thoughts, us growing into that. And so I'm just doing a little wordplay, sanctificanots, the things that we cannot and should not be doing as the people of God. And look at what he says, continuing in verse 5. So put to death. What belongs to your earthly nature, and he begins to list them all. Sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, and idolatry. And he skips down, down to verse 8. Malice and wrath, anger, slander, filthy language, all these kinds of things. Here's what this is showing us, guys. God realizes there are things in your life right now that don't make much of Jesus. And we should realize this too. It's no surprise that there are going to be sins that we battle. Sins that we must put to death. Things that are messing things up in our life, inflicting damage on ourselves and others. Every single one of us has sins that are eating the many horses in our lives. And Paul says, put them to death. And the gospel culture helps one another put them to death. Uh, almost every you in this passage is a y'all in Greek. It's plural. You've been raised. Y'all have been raised with Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. It's plural. Y'all. 
So this is a collective effort of us living out these Christian call to put these things to death. You need people in your life who will hang up a seasoned raccoon for you. You need those kinds of Christian friends who will tell you, I see that beast. And it'll look this, it'll, it'll take a couple different shapes. You need people that will tell you, hey, the way that you talked to your husband today, that was a gator. You, you shouldn't talk to him that way, especially in front of all of us. Or the way you talk to your wife or to your kids, that was very unloving. I, you don't have to do that. And also they'll take other shapes of, hey, will you help me catch this gator? Because I've tried for years to attack this sin and I'm having a hard time putting it to death. I need you to help me. See, a gospel culture cares about holiness. Cares about holiness. And in the first word that he talks about, this word in verse five, sexual immorality, this word is the Greek word porneia, and you can hear the root of that, but here's what this word means, why I'm telling you. You have a drawer in your house that is filled with pins and index cards, Altoids, half-melted chapstick, old gum, random batteries, mail that you should have dealt with already, magnets, 37 coupons from Bed Bath & Beyond. You've, you have this drawer in your house. It's a junk drawer. It just holds all kinds of stuff. And this word porneia is a junk drawer, meaning it includes every kind of sin. Every kind of sin outside of one man and one woman in marriage. Whatever you can think of that doesn't fit that category, that is what Paul is addressing. And Paul says, kill it. And impurity and lust, those glances, those thoughts, those desires, Kill them. Don't catch and release. There is far too much catch and release of our sins in the Christian church. We think we're doing good by catching them, confessing it. Yep, I got it. Sin right here. And then we don't break its neck. We just release it back out into the wild. We don't put it to death. And then it comes back and attacks us. So we have to stop catching and releasing our sins. And then we, we catch them, we confess it. And we stare it in the face. We look at that reptilian jerk in the face. And then you know God's love. You think about God's love for you. You think about the cross. You think about the resurrection. And then you feel God's love for you so much that the intensity of God's love makes that sin drop dead in its place. C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Great Divorce, where this man has a sin that he carries on his shoulder, this reptile, and it tells him horrible things all the time, all the time, and he finally wants to get rid of it. And the reptile's like, no, don't, don't get rid of me, don't get rid of me. Says, but he gives me so much comfort, I don't know. The guy says, no, you have to. And he takes that thing, it shrieks and it howls, but then he feels like he's a transformed person. We do the same things. And we got to do this moment by moment. When you feel that gator, when you feel it rolling up on you, the anger, the lust, the impurity, you feel it crawling up on shore, stop being a spectator. Your sanctification is not a spectator sport. You get involved by the power of the Spirit. You kill it. As Paul says in Romans 8, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to, to the flesh to live according to it. But if you live according to the flesh, the gators in your life, you will die. 
the old nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Spirit says, I will help you put sins to death. And I am an expert hunter. You just ask the Spirit, help me drop this sin, to put it to death. Moment by moment, you can turn. You used to live this way. You once, look what Paul says in verse 7. In 3.7, these things, you once walked in these things when you were living in them. So this was the culture. This was your life before. But now, verse 8, but now. So now we have this new way of living, and it's over. Put them all away because of this new culture. So now Paul does a little transition here. He goes from the sins of the heart that we, uh, we act on to now the sins of the heart that we act on with our speech. Verse 8's all speech. Put them all away. Anger. Wrath, these are all things we do towards people. Wrath, anger, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Paul says, put them away. And this is really key because Paul is saying we care about holiness and we care about kindness. Holiness and kindness are some of the key attributes of a gospel culture because we all know you can be a kind of church and be a kind of Christian that I care about holiness. Holiness matters. It does But if we're not kind, then we betray holiness. Kindness is a part of holiness. We can't truly live out those holy lives in Christ unless we're truly kind to one another. And it starts with these things that we cannot do, these sanctificanots. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. I mean, it shouldn't be shocking that non-Christians in social media, they live and operate this way. But beloved, should we? Those of us who've died with Christ and raised with Christ? We're going to lash out in anger and wrath towards someone, even though the wrath of God's been taken away from us? We're going to slander a, a fellow sinner because, what, we, we think we're better? It's blasphemy. Paul says, put these away. Get these out of here. We betray the grace we claim to believe if we are ungracious towards one another. And we can betray our new nature by slipping back into the old one, and it's as easy as putting clothes on. That's the image. Put off, put on, put off, put on. You did that today. You got dressed today. You put on new clothes. You put on, so that's the image Paul's using, this new nature. Because we wear clothes that fit the occasion. You see someone in scrubs, what do you know? Medical, doctor, nurse, vet. You see someone in camo, what do you know? military. And when you're going to paint a room in your house, what do you wear? Do you go and get that nice dress you got? You go put on some heels. Man goes and puts on his blazer and a tie. No, only a fool would put that stuff on. You put on junk, stuff you don't care about if you're going to paint. It doesn't matter. You put on garbage. You put on an Aggie shirt or a UT shirt or, or whatever, a Golden State Warrior shirt. It doesn't matter. You put those things on. Because you put on the right stuff for the right occasion. So the Lord is showing us here, Christian, you live in a gospel culture. You live now in Christ. And so you put on the righteousness of Christ. Everywhere you go, the clothes for the occasion are Christ. Because this is what defines the gospel culture. Our shared in Christness. We're all wearing the same thing. Every Christian you meet They are just as much in Christ as you are. No less, no more. 
There are no cliques. There are no ghettos. There are no first-class sections in Christ. A gospel culture realizes we are all just as much in Christ. Pastors don't have privilege. Missionaries don't have privilege. We are all in the same place in Christ. And this is why this is really key for us. And I think right now in this time in America, that a gospel culture also stands against injustice and racism and mistreatment because of verse 11. Look at verse 11. In Christ, so now this in Christness we share, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. So here's what we got to know about the way that we talk about race in a gospel culture. This verse doesn't mean we're colorblind. Sometimes you hear Christians say that. I don't see color. No, stop saying that. You do. We all do. Of course we see ethnicity. It's pretty much the first thing we see about someone. And we shouldn't act like we don't see it. It's not bad. It's glorious. God made us with varying skin tones and cultures. The fact that God made us this way is a wonderful insight into the mind and heart of God. So this verse, what it's telling us is that being in Christ means this is what ultimately defines us, not our skin color, not our backgrounds. Being in Christ is what binds us and bonds us together, that I see Christ in you first. And the early church had tons of problems. You see this all throughout the New Testament. They had tons of problems with Greeks and Jews because Jews thought they were supreme. And Greeks thought, no, we are better. The circumcised thought they were better. Uncircumcised, no, we're better. Paul says, neither one has an advantage or disadvantage because, as the verse ends, Christ is all and in all. Christ is supreme. Jesus defines us. Jesus loves us. And Jesus brings us all together. So you see a black brother or sister, Christ is in them. You see a Jewish one. You see a Chinese one, a Filipino one, a Mexican one. Christ is in them. And it's interesting that Paul mentions two things. You look at the end, towards the end of verse 11. Barbarian, Scythian. Barbarian is the big category. But Scythian is very specific. Because this was a people group that Colossians would have known. That was north of them and that they historically treated as unrefined, as savages, as lesser than, as embarrassing people to see, to know, or to be around. So Paul gets really specific and says, Colossians, the way you think of Scythians is wrong. And the way you think of Scythian Christians is wrong. And some of you, Some of you, the way you think about African-Americans or Mexicans or Asians or the poor is wrong. And here's what we all need to realize. White is not the default. But I think that's how a lot of white-skinned brothers and sisters think. And I'm half Mexican. My mom is from Mexico City. My dad is as white as could be. So let me speak to my white brothers and sisters for a moment. White's not the default. Even when we use the phrase person of color, it's not, I don't like that phrase. Because even in that phrase, that's a person of color, it has tongued into it, the white is the default. And everyone else is just shades of that, just the sliding bar is just going down. No, white is not the default. The default is human. The default is made in the image of God. In a gospel culture, the only thing that's supreme is Christ. 
because Christ is all and Christ is in all. And since that's our doctrine and now that's our culture, look at what the kind of culture it creates when Christ is all and in all. It puts off the sanctificanots, but it also puts on the sanctificans. We pursue holiness and kindness. Look at verse 12. Since it's true that Christ is all and in all, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So this is the foundation of a gospel culture. Christ is all. Christ is in all. So how are we going to treat each other as a church? But before we get into that, we got to begin with this. As Paul reminds the Colossians who they are. And Paul reminds you, if you are in Christ, who, who you are. Verse 12 again. God's chosen ones. Holy and dearly loved. Every Christian here, listen. You are one of God's precious ones. Holy. Declared his. Dearly loved. These are not throwaway words for Paul. This is huge. That every Christian in this room, you cannot be more loved by God than you are right now. And you cannot be less loved by God ever than you are right now. You matter to him. So Paul gives us this because here's what we're, we're seeing a critical truth in the Bible that we must understand if we're going to make much of Jesus and, and be a gospel culture. We must know the relationship between the indicative and the imperative. The big English, you know, kind of nerdy words, but they're really simple to understand. The indicatives of the Bible indicate a truth, something to believe, something you are. The indicative here is you're God's chosen ones. You're holy. You're dearly loved. It's indicating a truth about you that you must know. And then Paul rockets into an imperative. Put on compassion. Since you are this, live this way. Since this is true about you, live this way. This is all over the New Testament, and it is critical to a gospel culture. We can never separate the indicatives from the imperative, and legalism puts the imperative first and chunks out the indicative. Liberalism just focuses on, on the indicatives. No, but we've got to bring both together. These, this command comes from our in Christness. And so what does Paul want a gospel culture to be? Look at verse 12. Look at the very first one. Put on compassion. If we did that, if we are known as a church that was compassionate, people would be blown away. Compassion is the attachment to someone else's hurt or suffering and experience. That when you see something go south or go wrong or something painful in someone's life, you don't go, should have made a better choice. No, you say, I'm sorry. And you enter in with them. Compassion enters into it, feels for the person. You know why? Because we're one body. Your body, your, God has designed your body to instinctively imitate this. You smash your finger, what happens? Your other hand instinctively runs over to it and hugs it. It doesn't lecture it. What are you doing, you moron? No, it comes and hugs it. It doesn't go to the knee. Did you see what happened to that dumb finger? No. There's compassion even in your own body. And God has designed it that way on purpose. And Christ is compassionate to you, isn't he? Filled with gentleness and humility. That's where he goes next. So put on compassion. 
And notice these are things we have, we have to like instinctively think, I need to put this on. You don't wake up with kindness. You got to put it on. You don't run into another Christian in H-E-B and already you're already wearing your compassion. No, you got to put it on. So now put on kindness, humility, and gentleness. Kindness, humility, gentleness. You know what this verse shows me? It shows us. Mean Christians are out of touch with Jesus. There's another way to think about it. Mean Christians are out of touch with the Messiah. who was gentle and lowly and humble in heart. They aren't feeling the gravity of his mercy. Because if you spend time with Jesus, you read about Jesus in the Gospels and you think about his teachings and you think about your life and the kindness he has shown you over and over and over again, the gentleness upon gentleness, now it radiates through your life. Unkind churches be, betray the kindness of God. We're to be a kind, compassionate, gentle, humble church. And you know what that looks like? A kind, compassionate, gentle church looks like this. It's a place where no one has to hide their sin or hide what their kids did. I read this story from Russell Moore's new book, The Storm-Tossed Family, and it immediately resonated with other churches I'd been a part of before where this woman came up to him after the service and said, you know, Pastor, will you pray for me? And he said, sure, what can I pray for you about? And the lady paused, kind of looked over her shoulder like, no, to see if anybody was around, and then began to whisper, pray for my kids. He, she, my oldest, she went off to college, and now she thinks she's an atheist. And she kept looking over her shoulder, and he said, well, why are you whispering? Well, I don't want to embarrass my husband. I don't want, you know, people to judge us for maybe, you know, since we public schooled, and of course this was going to happen because we put him, you know, I just feel so convicted. I feel so ashamed. Would you pray? That interaction is a sign of a church that is not kind, that is not compassionate, that is not gentle, where we have to hide our sins or hide what our kids are doing or hide how things are happening in our lives because we think we're going to be run out of town. Because we think we're going to be met with horror. There's a thing that we're going to be condemned. But a gospel culture says you don't have to hide. You won't be run out. You won't be met with horror. And you won't be condemned. Because Christ was already run out of town for you. Christ was run out of Jerusalem, crucified outside of those walls, beaten so bad that he couldn't even carry his cross himself. And when you confess and when sins are brought up and things are discussed, you won't be met with horror because the horror of crucifixion already happened. There was already enough blood and sweat and tears and mocking and clothes being gambled at the foot of the cross. And you won't be condemned in a gospel culture because Jesus was already condemned in your place for your sins. And we don't have to add our two cents of our opinions. And here's what you should have done. Because Jesus was already sold for 30 pieces of silver. And all that's left for us now in a gospel culture is the new life we have in Christ. Where he is worthy. Where he is worthy. A gospel culture imitates the grace of God. It's, it's grace in high def. It's grace in 3D. And this next piece of a gospel culture, this may be the hardest one. I don't know if you're ready for it, but it's here, so we're going to look at it. Verse 13, 
bearing with one another. More literally, put up with one another. This might be one of the hardest commands in the whole Bible. Bearing with one another. You know why this is here? We know we should forgive each other. That's later. We, we know that. Christians, oh, I've got to forgive. But we don't know we got to bear and put up with each other. God put this here because he knows we are going to annoy each other. It's true. That's why it's here. You know why? Paul knows you're going to annoy each other. So what should you do? Paul says, go to another church. No. Bear with one another. So who's ever been annoyed by another Christian? Man, you guys are way more holy than the first service. All of you, I'm annoyed by those of you who didn't raise your hand. We're going to drive each other crazy. We're going to have weird food-like tendencies. Other Christians' kids are going to drive us crazy. There will be Christians in your life that you just don't click with. And Paul says, put up with one another. Bear with one another. There will be Christians that text you that annoy you just in how they text. That's how petty we are. But the gospel culture says, no petty wars. We're going to endure with one another. Bear with the person who's always late. Bear with the woman who can only talk in a prayer voice. Bear with the guy who, when he talks in a small group, it never makes sense. Or bear with the guy who always loves to peacock his theology. We are going to drive each other crazy. But a gospel culture doesn't just smile and fake it. It puts off the anger. It puts off the slander. It puts off the wrath. It puts off the gossip. and puts on kindness because of Christ. Look at how he continues in verse 13. And forgiving one another. Just at, and if anyone has a grievance. So like a real like, hey, you hurt me. Not just you annoyed me. But in actual sin, you hurt me. Forgive just as the Lord has forgiven you. So there will be times that sin occurs. It's not sinful for how, being annoyed. That's our problem, not theirs. But there are times when we do sin against each other. And a gospel culture operates in the gospel. Blood, death, resurrection, new life. And when he says, just as the Lord has forgiven you, there you see the nuclear core of a gospel culture. How has the Lord treated us? That's how we treat one another. If he's forgiven us, so we forgive. So the gospel is now the mirror and the lens through which we treat one another. So how has the Lord forgiven you? Really, that should lead you to ask, have I been forgiven? Have all my sins been forgiven by God? Have I believed that Christ forgives me? That all my sins were placed on him, that he died for me and rose for me, that I am forgiven. And if that's true, now we can forgive. And we'll take time. It could take meetings. It could take layers of conversations. But the point is that a gospel culture forgives. Because you can look at that sin that was committed against you and see that sin was in the blood of Jesus too. Not just all mine, but all theirs. That their sin was forgiven. That those drops of blood that landed at Calvary on that Jerusalem soil, that was their sins being forgiven too. And since that's true, now verse 14. Above all, put on love. This is like the summary of it all, which is bonds us together in unity. Families can be annoying at times, just like our real families, siblings and kids and in-laws. I've been around, you know, kids, my own, playing their recorder in the car on the way home from school. You need to throw that out the window, Ivy. We're not doing that right now. You shouldn't bring that home. That thing's too annoying. Singing at 6 o'clock in the morning just because 
Who doesn't love singing at six o'clock in the morning? Or a husband forgetting the one thing he went to the store for, for his wife, but got all of his stuff. We bear with one another. We love one another. We forgive one another. And it's possible because of verse 16. Look at what he says in 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Now, this, this, notice he doesn't say, let the words of Christ. So don't interpret this as, oh, he's talking about Jesus' teachings. He's not just talking about the teachings of Christ. He says the word of Christ, everything about Jesus. How Genesis to Revelation is all about Jesus. How the whole Old Testament looked forward to Jesus. So, and his teachings, and his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and his reign from the heavens right now, let that word of Christ dwell richly among us. That's the y'all. Dwell richly among y'all. That should dominate our church and dominate our small groups. And when he says richly, it doesn't mean financially. It means in abundance. In abundance where there's gospel everywhere. Everywhere you turn, there's, hey, gospel, tell me the gospel. Tell me about Jesus again. Like, we can't just have crumbs of the words of Christ. Some of us just deal with crumbs and scraps of thoughts of Jesus. We, crumbs and scraps will not change a church culture. But what will change a church culture is a Costco load of the word of Christ. When you come home from a Costco load, there are boxes everywhere, stuff everywhere. When you have a Costco load of the gospel, everywhere you turn, where you're processing, how you're thinking, how you're feeling, how you want to respond, what you want to say, what you should say, the truth of the bloody cross and the vacated tomb speaks. How we teach one another. Look at what Paul says, very oddly, but gloriously, how we teach one another in all wisdom. So, let, so why? So we can teach one another and admonish and encourage and love one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, like what we've done this morning, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. So here's what Paul does. He says, think about the gospel in terms of rhythm, in terms of song. Because a lot of us, we're not great at scripture memory. We try. A lot of us aren't going to remember the books of doctrine we read. We're not going to be able to be in a coffee shop later this week and go, oh, do you know what Calvin says on page 682? No, that, that, that doesn't happen. But you know what we can do? When, you're, when you are down in your sin and discouraged, or when you're sitting with a brother or sister who is hurting and, and doesn't know um, how to navigate what's happening, you do have psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That it is well with your soul. Because your sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And you don't have to bear it anymore. Or that there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And when sinners are plunged beneath that flood, they lose all their guilty stains. See, we can sing to one another and speak to one another in gospel songs. So the word of Christ can dwell richly among us because we are committed to this thing in verse 17. And whatever you do, soccer field, little league field, traffic, work, parenting, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the mantra of a gospel culture. Whatever we do, it's because of Jesus. And it's for Jesus. And it's by Jesus. And it's for the fame of his name. And if it doesn't bring him fame, we don't want to do it. 
I got this idea. Well, will it bring Jesus fame? Will it make much of him? No, not going to do it. And what you pursue in your life, it's all for his fame. Everything falls under this criteria. That's why we put on the sanctificants. That's why we pursue holiness and kindness, because it's our new nature. And that's why we put off the sanctificants, the works of the flesh. We put them to death, pursuing holiness and kindness, putting on and putting to death. And we put to death with the vigilance and tenacity of a grandma avenging her mini horse. Because Christ matters. And you matter. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.